And that, my friends, is how America was made great once again. Breaking at this hour, Jimmy Sangenberger is currently at the crossroads of politics and economics. Radio broadcaster master, now the celeb on the web. He's the smarty of the party. He's in cahoots with the grassroots. Jimmy at the Crossroads brings you thought-provoking commentary, hard-hitting interviews, original satire, and the best bumper music known to man. Jimmy at the Crossroads! Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics. We're for all generations. Oh, what a great mix, I said. Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics. Grateful to all generations. Oh, what a great mix. I got Jimmy and the Crossroads making sense out of nonsense. People want answers. They want to understand. They come to the crossroads and Jimmy gives them the plan. I said, gonna talk money. Gonna talk politics. Great for all generations. Oh, what a great mix. I got Jimmy at the crossroads. Making sense out of nonsense. Come on, Jimmy, what you got? Hello, my friends, and welcome to another edition of Jimmy at the Crossroads. I am Jimmy Sangenberger, your host for the program, coming to you in partnership with the esteemed Washington Examiner, making sense out of nonsense and bringing you engaging, intelligent talk, Zang style, day in and day out. Thanks so much for joining us, being a part of the program that has the best intro song for any political talk show or podcast known to man. Yes, I'm playing harmonica in it, but we've got the beautiful, incredible voice of the great Biff Gore of season six of The Voice, who co-wrote, was the main writer, I'll give him the credit. He was the main writer of the Jimmy at the Crossroads theme song. Has an incredible voice, has that rhythm. We also have the tune mixed yeah. <laughs> and mastered by Scott Mitchell, who did a fantastic job as well with bass and drums in the tune. So, love it. Gotta love it. All right, good to be with you here in Denver, Colorado, where I have to tell you, it is cloudy, it is snowy, it's kind of a crummy day amidst all the chaos that's going on. We're here to have fun. We're here to have a good time with a great lineup today. We will be joined in a little bit by Krista Huff, Chief Analyst at Cabot Undervalued Stocks Advisor, to get her thoughts on what's happening in the stock market. She's always got very interesting insights and some thoughts on strategies and so forth, especially in the midst of the political dynamics that we're seeing. How should people respond to headlines? That is the big question. When we see the headlines from the political sphere, from the government sphere, should we be paying close attention to those headlines if you're making investment decisions or ignore the headlines? Then I am excited to bring on Sidney Powell, the author of, co-author of the new book, 
conviction machine standing up to federal prosecutorial abuse, along with Harvey A. Silverglate. It's an interesting new book about how to reform the federal criminal justice system and so many different errors in it. Now, Sidney Powell most recently has been known as Michael Flynn's lawyer, the former national security advisor, who entered in a guilty plea and now has been pushing back, rescinded that guilty plea. What's going on there? Why did he go about giving a guilty plea first and then rescinding it later? How is that playing out? And how does that fit into the narrative that Sidney Powell, our guest, and her co-author present in Conviction Machine, their book? We will talk with the author of this book coming up later in the show. And then Gordon G. Chang is a noted China critic. I got to get his thoughts on some things that we've been hearing of late about the Chinese government and how they are trying to present and provide aid to countries like Italy and others who are dealing very difficult with, they're dealing with very difficult circumstances when it comes to coronavirus. And the Chinese are stepping up. Should America be worried about that? Also, the World Health Organization in hot water for good reason, and here's something interesting. Let's put up the tweet from Ari Fleischer this morning, and we'll talk about this with Gordon Chang. I love Fleischer, and it's hard to, to read there, but it says, Dear WHO, do you plan to delete this tweet? Signed, everyone in the world outside of China. The tweet was from the World Health Organization on January 14th, saying, quote, Preliminary investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission of the novel coronavirus. 2019 uh, NCOV identified in Wuhan, China. Well, yeah, they should definitely take down that tweet. Chinese officials say no human-to-human -human contact? Really? Hmm. And they trusted them? This is the same organization, the World Health Organization, that refused to answer a very pertinent question about Taiwan in an interview with a Hong Kong media outlet. We'll talk about that more with Gordon Chang later on. So Krista Huff, Sidney Powell, and Gordon G. Chang all joining us today. But first, a couple things I want to talk about, and in a moment I want to bring on Nathan Matouche, working the Matouche Magic, our producer extraordinaire. Yesterday, I don't know what to make of this yet. President Trump yesterday announced with his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, with Secretary of Defense Esper, with Attorney General Bill Barr, a new incursion down on our southern border and south of it with the U.S. military dealing with the drug war and cartels, which is fascinating to see, especially because this was a coronavirus press conference, and President Trump decided to co-op the coronavirus aspect of it for a while with these officials. Let's play a couple video clips here that we've got, starting with Cut 5. This is Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, excuse me, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, Mr. Kelly, saying, well, explaining his take on what's going on and why it's important and how the U.S. military will step up. Thank you, Secretary, for those uh, 
uh, words and thank you, Mr. President, for your leadership. And I want to publicly thank uh, Admiral Craig Fowler, the commander of uh, U.S. Southern Command out of Miami, uh, for leading this operation, which is underway effective uh, today. And also Admiral Gilday, uh, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Schultz, for their contributions to this from their services. There's thousands of sailors, uh, Coast Guardsmen, uh, soldiers, airmen, Marines involved in this operation. Uh, we came upon some intelligence uh, some time ago uh, that the drug cartels, as a result of COVID-19, were going to try to take advantage of the situation and try to infiltrate additional drugs into our country. As we know, the 70,000 Americans uh, die on an average annual basis uh, to drugs. Uh, that's unacceptable. We're at war with COVID-19, we're at war with terrorists, and we are at war with the drug cartels as well. Uh, this is the United States military. You will not penetrate this country. You will not get past Jump Street. You're not going to come in here and kill additional Americans. And we will marshal whatever assets are required to prevent your entry into this country to kill Americans. So right now, the Navy has marshaled additional Greyhull ships from both PACOM and UCOM and for the Naval Fleet at Norfolk. And they are set sail already, and they are in the Caribbean right now. In addition to that, there's 10 Coast Guard cutters, and there's Special Operations Forces and Security Force Assistance Brigades, along with Air Force uh, reconnaissance aircraft. The bottom line is you're not going to get through. Uh, now is not the time to try to penetrate the United States with illegal drugs to kill Americans. Uh, with the United States military, we will defend our country regardless of the cost. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank, Thank you, Rolling Secretary. Rolling out America's top military official to declare an escalation at down south, of course, so not in our country. They're not going to be putting troops out onto the streets to address the drug war in America. But rolling out military leaders like that in that press conference, I don't know. I have, on the one hand, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable to see this kind of an incursion happening at this moment. But on the other hand, if there really is intelligence that they're getting, and I have no reason to doubt military officials like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, then they should take appropriate action. It's just stunning to see this sort of thing happen. But the cartels, make no mistake, have been a menace. They have been stirring up more than their fair share of trouble, resulting in many deaths of Americans. And not just because of the buy and sale of drugs, but many other aspects of what the cartels do. Their power extends in more ways. It does look like the Mexican government's helping them out, so Perhaps this is a good thing. The timing is just kind of interesting to me, and especially the notion of a press conference where you bring out military officials as well as the Attorney General. Let's listen to cut six here. This is Attorney General Bill Barr giving his thoughts on this operation. Thank you, Mr. President. Thanks for your uh, decisive leadership as we confront this unprecedented uh, challenge uh, posed by Corona coronavirus. And I'd like to thank you for your support for this important initiative and thank uh, all of uh, the Secretary of Defense and all the services uh, for taking on this, uh, this important initiative. Obviously, during this crisis, we're all focused uh, above all else on COVID-19. But at the same time, uh, our law enforcement and national security work must go forward, protecting the American people from the full array uh, of threats. For the Department of Justice, one of our highest priorities must remain destroying the Mexican cartels. Their trafficking is largely responsible for the deaths, as we all know now, of 70,000 Americans a year. Uh, and also, the costs of this don't count 
uh, the destroyed families, the destroyed lives, the draining of our national uh, treasure as state budgets are crushed by uh, the burden that this, uh, the, the, this uh, 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 narcotic trafficking causes. The President has made clear uh, that we are in this fight against the cartels to win and that we are not interested in half measures and that the threat posed by the cartel is not just a law enforcement threat, but a national security threat as well. Attorney General Bill Barr yesterday at the press conference, and fair enough. I mean, I, I think that what we're seeing down south, the Mexican drug cartels and others, is scary. And so in taking this action, if they're decisive and swift, as the U.S. military is, it will likely be a very beneficial thing for this country. On the other hand, the, the notion of the timing of it is something the media has been bringing up and trying to say is suspect. I don't think that it's suspect. I think that there's a focus where the American people were looking first. Like I think that they probably should have started with the coronavirus stuff. That's my thing. They should have began with the coronavirus part of the press conference and then shifted over to this war on drugs operation down south because the American people, the media, they're particularly looking for those tidbits. But on the other hand, to the extent the media is even covering these press conferences now, they might completely ignore the drug cartel operation if not for beginning with that. So. I don't know. It's hard to, to handicap that. I'll just say that I trust the military leaders, and we'll see how this policy shakes out. You're watching Jimmy at the Crossroads, where our producer extraordinaire is Nathan Matouche, working the Matouche magic day in and day out here on the show. And Nathan, how the heck are you today, my friend? Jimmy, I'm doing good. I'm glad to be here once again. Uh, it's kind of looking like a pre-zombie apocalypse outside with the uh, with the weather, especially up here on the uh, on the top floor, with it looking very gloomy out there. It kind of looks like uh, the Dagobah system. With the, and I feel like Master Yoda is going to come to life in, you know, the, in this segment. The only challenge is that it's snowing more like Hoth than it is swampy like Dagobah. Exactly. So, how are you doing with all this coronavirus stuff? Well, you know, I mean, for me, life is kind of the same as it would be because obviously I'm still at work here uh, producing on Jimmy at the Crossroads. So, I mean, life for me during the week is kind of the same. But on the weekends, I mean, sometimes I kind of enjoy being laid back, just kind of, you know, watching some movies. I was watching the Dark Knight trilogy. I've been watching a lot of that 70s show on, on Netflix lately. But I'm telling you, I'm a people person. I miss being around my family. I miss being around friends. And um, it kind of stinks. So people know we are more than six feet apart where you are here in this studio. Mm -hmm. You're at the desk. I'm here at the table. So we are keeping up our social distancing here. Uh, Nathan, let me ask you, before I, we get to, to politics for a few minutes, um, I know you're a big sports guy. In fact, last week we had you, we brought you on air, and you talked a little bit about Tom Brady announcing that he's leaving the Patriots, making that shift, which is pretty striking news, to be sure, historic for football. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, now I'm hearing you're telling me that baseball, because of the coronavirus pandemic, 
The season, if and when it continues, may last into December. Is that right? Yeah, into December. They're, they're discussing it. I'm not really sure if there's a lot of series around this, but I mean, can you imagine watching baseball around Christmas time? I mean, baseball season is already long as it is. I think they should just shorten the season. I mean, come on, just shorten it like, like 30 games. You know, big deal. You have 130 games instead of 160. But, I mean, can you imagine just waking up on Christmas morning and maybe the World Series is going on? <laughs> oh, no. Well, that would be pretty crazy. But you think about it. At that time of year, you've got football going on and you'd be having baseball. How would people divide up their time if they're huge football and baseball fans and it happens to be like a, a Sunday game where there's a big conflict? Let's yeah. say, let's say the, 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 we're here in Colorado, the Broncos and the Rockies happen to be on the same day at the same time. I mean, it, it would be pretty great, to be honest, to have it. both the Rockies and the, the Broncos play in downtown Denver around that time. I don't, I'm not sure if it would last all the way to Christmas, uh, but maybe a couple weeks before. I tell you, though, it, it would be pretty interesting. And, I mean, football, December, you know, that's, that's the fight for the playoffs. And hockey? Hockey would be going on. I mean, all the sports that, might be going on at the same time. And we run into this time usually around October when we have literally all the sports on. But now it could be even longer into so, December. Yeah, and maybe the economic impact is so interesting because right now you would be having games going on and a lot of more sports activity. We would have just finished up with March Madness and so forth uh, from the, the college level. This has had a very significant economic impact because you don't have people going to these games. You don't have, I mean, I guess the players are still getting paid, but in terms of people who work at these games at the stadiums, they may be shortchanged. And uh, of course, the sports networks just scraping around, trying to find something to provide for content and what have you. Yep. And then I guess maybe you pile up all the sports later in the year to try to make as much of an economic impact as you can in some regards, but at the same time, people will be stretched thin for money and the ability to, to go, say, here in Colorado to a Broncos, Rockies, and Avs game all in like the same month might be difficult for some people. Well, yeah, exactly. And I mean, we've talked on the show before about the, you know, the stimulus package that took up a third of the American economy. How about, how about sports? How much of the economy does sports take up? I mean, how much does sports play an impact in, in economics? And like you're saying, it, it is very significant. And without sports, I think it's putting a lot of people out of jobs, a lot of people that aren't working right now. Um, what they say, I can't remember how many people aren't working in the United States currently, but you know, it's got to be on the same lines of maybe the, dep the Depression era when there were a lot of people out of work, out of jobs. Nathan Matouche, when we look at the political climate right now. You had a couple interesting questions for me. I'm curious what you want to ask. Yeah, I think the main question I want to ask is a lot of people are comparing you know, how President Trump is handling the coronavirus pandemic currently at the moment. I personally think he's handling it great. There's been a lot of people, even on the other side, even on the left, we could play a video cut later of uh, the governor of California saying that President Trump is doing a great job with the coronavirus response, there's also a lot of people saying that Governor Cuomo in New York is doing a great job with his people over there. My question to you is, are they both on the same level? I mean, who do you think is handling it better? You know, that's a great question. I think it's a great question because people are making that comparison, and I don't think it's an apt comparison. And I say this particularly because President Trump is president of the United States. 
He's having to deal with the entire country. He's having to deal with all 50 states in the union. He's having to deal with marshalling federal support and aid, dealing with Congress, this and that. Cuomo's got a more narrow territory of New York and a different set of powers. In fact, he's the one who's able to declare a quarantine in the state in a way that President Trump cannot. So I don't think you can make that kind of a comparison. As far as messaging is concerned, I think President Trump has improved in his messaging over time. A couple days ago, especially, we saw very sobering, very salient press conference on the part of President Trump and his team. So I would say Trump's doing a fine job now. Governor Cuomo seems to be doing overall a decent job in New York. And I got a lot of family in New York State. I'm originally from New York State. Uh, so I don't think you can New make York. that comparison. I think they're both, they're both doing fine overall. But to your point about Governor Newsom of California, let's play that clip of, uh, of Governor Newsom. And this is cut eight where he says that, look, President Trump has indeed been responsive to our needs. This is Governor Gavin Newsom of California on CNN. It's a times of crisis. We need to raise above the partisanship. And, and I've extended always an open hand, not a closed fist in those circumstances. And this is no different. But let me just be candid with you. I'd be lying to you to say that he hasn't been responsive to our needs. He has. And so as a question, uh, as, a, as a sort of an offer, offer of, of objectivity, I have to acknowledge that publicly. And the fact is, every time I've uh, called the president, he's quickly gotten on the line. When we asked to get support for that mercy ship in Southern California, he was able to direct that in real time. Uh, we've got 2,000 of these field, field uh, medical sites uh, that are up, almost all operational now in the state uh, because of his support. And those are the facts. Uh, we always want more. I could criticize this or that. At the end of the day, we're just trying to focus on developing a relationship of trust uh, as a matter of course, because there's just too many Americans, 40 million uh, that live in this state that deserve us to get together and get along. What is it the Democrats and the mainstream media often say? Facts matter. Well, there you go. Governor Newsom saying those are the facts. He's been responsive to our needs. And Nathan Matouche, I think it is critical to keep that in mind that you've got the governor of a solidly democratic state in an election year in California, just keeping it real and saying, this is how it is. The president has been responsive to our needs, which I think challenges the narrative that we're very much hearing from the president's opponents right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I think that's a great sign to see people, even on, uh, even on the far left in uh, you know, the state of California, that are, you know, may not necessarily agree with President Trump on a lot of his politics, but are coming together in this time of a pandemic. I think it's great, but to me, it's looking like there is some, you know, Democrats out there who seem to be getting on the same, you know, page as President Trump concerning yeah. the coronavirus. But what it's looking like to me is there's still some people, uh, you know, Speaker, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, she doesn't seem to be on the same page. A lot of people in the media don't be on the same page. We had Don Lemon, uh, we had a, a segment, a clip of him yesterday, and he doesn't even want to play the press the, conference. The press conference. That's it's right. like it's like it's unbelievable. It, it's looking like, you know, some people are willing to say, okay, let's put politics aside and let's get this taken care of. Let's well, be with President Trump. And then sure. you got the media that's still Well, not Nathan Matouche. Maybe we will have a kumbaya moment later this year when everybody's watching hockey, baseball, and football. 
all in the same weekend. All during an election, too. <laughs> that's exa- that's right. That's exactly right. It's going to be mass chaos right now. It- enjoy this while you can. Sure. The being laid back because, I mean, yep. eventually there's – and it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome having the election. I mean, and politics is almost a sport as it that's is. That's true. So <laughs> you've got the election cycle of 2020. And all the sports you can fit into a week. And Nathan Matouche, working the Matouche Magic, our yeoman producer here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Thanks so much for joining us live on the air, my friend. Oh, always, Jimmy. It, it is a pleasure. And uh, like I said, now let's do this more often, my friend. You bet. All right, Nathan Matouche, everybody. We're going to take a break here. When we come back, we'll get started with our guest, Chris Huff, Chief Analyst at Cabot Undervalued Stocks Advisor, soon after the co-author of the new book, Conviction Machine, Sidney Powell, former federal prosecutor, is now attorney for Michael Flynn, the former National Security Advisor, as well as Gordon Chang. So keep it right here, Jimmy at the Crossroads, in partnership with the Washington Examiner. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. Don't go anywhere. Yell out, spark! Do you put in pauses when you talk? Do you start real soft and then go real loud? Have you won two Emmys? Do you love a crowd? Whatever makes you feel like a Shatner. Yeah, you got lots of macho and swagger. You had alien affairs. You sing bad, but no one cares. You find if you like to work, got a handsome smirk. If you're Captain Kirk, whatever makes you feel like a me. Phasers on stunning. Yeah, 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 I mean, already politics was pretty darn heated in 2020. And then we have the coronavirus pandemic hit and things become all the more intense, it seems. So we need a little bit of levity. And that's what we do, especially with the video breaks here on Jimmy at the Crossroads in partnership with the Washington Examiner. I'm your host, Jimmy Sangenberger. Follow me on Twitter at Sang Center. That's saying with an E, not an A, Center on Twitter. You can tweet at me 24-7-365 right there. In addition, you can log on to my website, jimmysangenberger.com. Remember, there's no A, there's no I, there's no U in Sangenberger. It's all E's all the time. Once you know that, Sangenberger is easy. And right there, you can shoot me an email from the contact page. Also, please, if you haven't subscribed yet, to the Jimmy at the Crossroads YouTube channel. Please go ahead and do so. We appreciate your support. And also follow me, like my page on Facebook, both the YouTube channel and my Facebook page are where you can currently watch the live broadcast of Jimmy at the Crossroads every day. That's Jimmy Sangenberger Media Personality on Facebook. And of course, like follow, subscribe to all things Washington Examiner. Check out their website, WashingtonExaminer.com. All right, so as of this broadcast, we are up a few hundred points 
on the Dow, looking a little bit more upward for the trajectory, at least today. After yesterday, stocks closing 4% lower in a bleaker start to the first quarter or second quarter after the worst first quarter since 2008. So what are we to make of it all? And to what extent should we be reading into the headlines, especially in a time like this? Leads to, in just a moment here, welcome to Jimmy at the Crossroads, Krista Huff. She is chief analyst at Cabot Undervalued Stocks Advisor and good friend of the show. Looks like her image is frozen, so we're going to call her back here on this show, and then we'll bring Krista up. She's always got interesting take on what's going on in the markets, on the headlines, on how to approach stock trading and so forth, especially when it comes to political dynamics. I mean, there's so many different things that are in play when we're talking about the stock market, but the Dow Jones Industrial Average yesterday down almost a thousand points, about four and a half percent lower by closing time. And we could see the stock market go down more, certainly. I mean, there's, there's ample reason to think so. It's also possible that the stock market could rise. We shall see. That's the thing right now. Nobody can really predict what's going to happen when it comes to the markets, especially when you got politicians at play with regards to a stimulus packages and talk of a phase four bill from Congress and what have you. I mean, these are all different components to the, uh, the, to the stimulus politics here when we're talking about coronavirus and all things considered. So it'll be very striking to see what ends up happening in that regard. So what, what I want to do here is we're having issues with getting Krista Huff here on the screen. I want to play cut seven just for a moment because this is a little bit of optimism for us. It's Dr. Anthony Fauci a couple of days ago pointing out how mitigation and the efforts of the Trump administration so far have actually been working. Take a look. In the next several days to a week or so, we're going to continue to see things go up. We cannot be discouraged by that because the mitigation is actually working and will work. The slide that Dr. Burke showed where you saw New York and New Jersey and then the cluster of other areas, our goal, which I believe we can accomplish, is to get the hotspot places, the New Yorks, the New Jersey, and help them to get around that curve, but as importantly, to prevent those clusters of areas that have not yet gone to that spike, to prevent them from getting that spike. And the answer to that is mitigation. Now, the 15 days that we had of mitigation clearly have had an effect, although it's tough to quantitate it because of those two opposing forces. But the reason why we feel so strongly about the necessity of the additional 30 days is that now is the time, whenever you're having an effect, not to take your foot off the accelerator and on the brake, but to just press it down on the accelerator. And that's what I hope and I know that we can do over the next 30 days. All right, once again, that is Dr. Anthony Fauci giving us some positive news. Okay, let's try it again here. Krista Huff, Chief Analyst, the Cabot Undervalued Stocks Advisor, rejoins us here on the program. Hello, Krista. Hi, How Jimmy. are you today? 
I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So yesterday we saw about 4% drop in the indices. Today we're seeing a bit of a rise. What do you mm -hmm. make of where we are at right now? Well, you know, the stock market is doing a bottoming pattern on the price chart. So people kept asking me if we were going to have a V recovery, which means the market falls and it goes right back up. And, you know, it doesn't work that way when you have a real deep correction. So we're going to have the market bouncing near a low point for a while. And I think this is going to be a trader's market all year. So if a stock's in a trading range, you could buy low, sell high repeatedly. And that's what I intend to do. Yesterday, we had Woody Vincent on the show, and Woody was suggesting that, what, that if you haven't sold stocks yet, it might not be wise at this point to do so because you kind of missed out on the opportunity. I don't even see the point on selling at the bottom of the market. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big bull. I always look forward to buying low. I specifically save up cash so that I can buy low. I've been buying stock just about every single day for three weeks now. Uh, this morning I bought shares of MDC Holdings, which is a Denver-based home builder. And last I looked, the stock was up 8% today, so that seemed to have been a good move. And yesterday I bought uh, PBF Energy, which is a micro-cap stock in the um, oil refining and marketing industry. So when, we, when we're in a time like this, we have a lot of headlines that come up. That can mm -hmm. be very discouraging about whether it's the stock market headlines or it's the news about coronavirus and the spread, the number of jobs that are lost. I mean, last Friday we saw the jobs report of about 3 million plus unemployed workers filing claims, at least filing mm -hmm. unemployment claims. How do you approach the headlines, especially when we have such a deluge day in and day out in a time like this? Um, for the most part, I ignore the headlines. Uh, as you already know, uh, I don't watch TV and I rarely tune into talk radio, but if I want to know what's going on, I go right to the source. So for instance, today I was at the website of oilprice.com, which is the place I go if I need to know what's happening in the oil markets. And it looks like President Trump talked to uh, uh, Mr. Putin over in Russia earlier this week and, and spoke with um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, I think is his name, yes. in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, yes. Right, right. And uh, lo and behold, the oil um, markets for West Texas crude and Brent crude are up about 23% right now. Um, that's a big one-day move. But as long as we've seen the bottom and it's going to be start to stabilize and hopefully rise, uh, that's really good news for um Everybody, really, not just business people and, uh, and economies, but people who invest in stocks. So the, the thing is, that this question about a bottom. I mean, a few weeks ago, we had you on my radio show, and you thought that we might have hit the bottom at that point in time, and then we went a lot lower. What makes you think we might be? I mean, obviously, no one can ever say with absolute certainty, hey, we're at the bottom or what have you, but that we might be or we might be near that bottom or we might have already hit it because we've improved a little bit. Early on the bottom. Um, and I was buying stocks, you know, before the bottom, after the bottom, I'm, I'm buying stocks. Um, I think it's, a, it's not important to buy at the very bottom day, it's important to buy low in general. If you're a stock investor, you want to buy stocks when they're on sale. If you're going to be buying them anyway, why buy them near the top when you can buy them near the bottom? Um, 
I look at the price charts, which is called technical analysis. And uh, a lot of the uh, price charts on the stocks that I follow are somewhat symmetrical, meaning you saw them fall in uh, February, March, and then bottom in the second half of March. And now the chart looks symmetrical on the other side, rising now late March, early April. Um, Amazon is a beautiful chart to look at uh, with a very symmetrical pattern. Um, my best coronavirus stock, which I named back in February, was Netflix. And sure enough, of all the stocks that I follow, it's the first one that's recovering back to its February high. So I have a lot of hope. Yeah, I mean, I guess yeah, a question that people are particularly asking, Krista Huff, Chief Analyst the Cabot Undervalued Stocks Advisor and our guest, if you're looking for an opportunity amidst all the craziness going on in the stock market tumbles and what have you, where those are. And so it does seem like you've got Netflix and Amazon among them. What other sectors or companies do you think are providing some opportunities right now for people who might be looking to invest, uh, especially if they sold before we really saw things go down and now they're looking to get in right at this point in time? Okay. Um, I'll name you a few industries. First of all, property and casualty insurance companies that have a concentration in auto insurance are a real smart place to invest because not only in the US, but all around the world, as people are quarantined, they're not driving their cars, which means they're not having auto accidents, which means the uh, property casualty companies are going to be far more profitable in the next couple of quarters than they were expected to be. And um, Wall Street, operates on expectations. So if you can surprise to the upside, that always helps share prices. Um, and the, the one that I've been buying is Mercury General Group. They have um, a lot of insurance in uh, California, but also about six or seven other US states. Uh, in addition, the uh, life and annuity companies, some of them also do investments. Those stocks have been trashed, probably because investors were assuming that life insurance companies would be in a lot of financial trouble like they were in the 2008 financial crisis. However, the current drop in the stock market bears no resemblance whatsoever to the drop in 2008, and life insurance um, stocks are basically the babies that got thrown out with the bathwater right now, incredibly cheap. So, And they were already very healthy companies. So um, investors can look at uh, Equitable, Bright House, Voya, and, and several others. So, so those are two good places. When we look broadly here and we see the, the, the market and how it has performed, you just said that at least our life insurance companies are concerned that we haven't seen the stock market rupture in the same way that we did in the 2008 financial crisis. But I hear a lot of comparisons. I hear people say the stock market crashed at this point in time. In fact, it could be the worst that we've ever seen, this and that. Um, although, keep in mind that we did have, just last week, the biggest bounce on the, uh, what was it, the Dow, since 1933, at the same time as we've been seeing these significant declines. But you have a lot of people saying, oh, this is worse, this is just painting this really negative sort of picture. You're an eternal optimist when it comes to the stock market, so I'm curious, how do you view this as comparing to 2008, Krista Huff? Causation is completely different. So the only thing that's in common is the market fell a lot, but but all the all the building blocks of a market downturn are completely different. 
Uh, it's like when you um, you meet a girl and she had a boyfriend who cheated on her, so now she's afraid to date because she thinks all the future men will cheat on her. Well, okay, one of them might be an addict and one of them might be a mama's boy, right? And three of them might be fantastic, but what are the odds that she's going to have the same exact problem with the next boyfriend? It's the same with stock market downturns. They always... Uh, the market falls for different reasons, and and uh, the recent downturn was compounded by uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia having a price war with oil, and it looks like they are negotiating now very purposefully to get that back under control. So that's going to be a boost to the near-term stock market. If oil prices um, head back upwards, it's going to be a great sigh of relief uh, on the part of Wall Street and international investors. So right there, you've got a very good reason that the market could go up near-term and not down. But how likely is that? I mean, this price war with Saudi Arabia and Russia doesn't seem like it's showing any signs of receding and giving us uh, the opportunity for, for example, American shale uh, producers to take advantage of it. And, and be, particularly because right now people aren't driving. Like usually people will take advantage of cheaper gas prices and help keep, for example, American producers afloat. We're not seeing that opportunity right now because people are being told to stay in place at home. Right. And also, I would point out that American shale producers were already in a lot of trouble completely regardless of the current market and, and gas price correction. So um, I would sort of put them in a, in a separate side box and not and not really mix them up in the current stock market discussion. Um, it was not very profitable for shale producers to try and extract oil from the ground. And, and that's their essential problem right now. Um, regarding negotiations for oil prices, apparently the crown prince is very purposely gathering the OPEC plus nations uh, to discuss this with a goal of improving and stabilizing the situation. And you can see the, the tweets from the, um, the uh, Saudi press agency, and uh, you can go to Twitter at S-P-A-E-N-G. And you can read what's going on there, but the, the official statements from Saudi Arabia really indicate that they are focused on resolving the oil price problem. Uh, I posed this question to Woody Vincent yesterday as well. Uh, a lot of times when we have a market correction, or in this case, we hit into a, a bear market, there's an underlying reason for it. Like it was sort of a cleansing opportunity for the market. Corrections happen. Bear markets happen. But this came upon us because of the coronavirus pandemic, it seems, more than anything else. Do you think that there are some underlying reasons and that this was going to happen at some point in the near future? Or is this simply the result of COVID-19 and the spread? Okay, well, first of all, uh, in December and January and February, I was warning uh, the investors who follow my uh, stock letter, Capit Undervalued Stocks Advisor, I was warning them that the market was overdue for a correction. And that's because the market took off in uh, late October and rose about 13% through the high in February. 13% is a really big move for a stock market over a short period of time. So I was encouraging people for many weeks in a row to raise cash so that they could buy low when the market finally corrected. So we had an overdue correction combined with the coronavirus, combined with the, the plummeting oil prices. And so it was like a trifecta of bad news, essentially, for the stock market. 
And that is important to keep in mind. There are multiple reasons for something like this taking place. It's not uh, necessarily just one thing. We're talking about individuals making investment decisions. And so I'm curious, though, we did see an uptick in the markets after that stimulus package was approved and how that has all been uh, panning out as far as government support. So how does that play a role in a stock market recovery, Krista Huff, Chief Analyst at Cabot Undervalued Stocks Advisor? Because that's politics in real time really happening with the passage of a law that is trillions of dollars in scope. Government and handing out free money, you know, that's that's never good, okay? And I, I'm not the one to analyze that, but I cringe at the idea that the government is handing out money. Uh, on the flip side, where is a lot of that money going to go towards? Retail products. And right now, retailers are suffering so dramatically that many of them, especially restaurants, by the way, may be going out of business permanently. Macy's just got kicked out of the S&P 500. And by the way, Macy's was already in a tremendous amount of debt. So the current Macy's problems are not so much about the stock market correction and the economy. They're about Macy's in general. Do you know that over 60% of Macy's annual profit comes from the interest on their credit cards? It doesn't even come from the products that they sell. So sometimes when you uh, hear about bad news coinciding with a bad stock market, the two issues are completely separate, sort of like when Occidental Petroleum uh, cut their dividend dramatically. Um, I think that was probably in early March. That also had nothing to do with the current stock market correction or the drop in oil prices. It was just that Occidental got in way over their heads on the purchase price of Anadarko. Final question, really quickly, Krista Huff, about 30 seconds for you. What do you think is the biggest mistake investors can make in this particular market? If they have money to buy stocks and they're not going to buy stocks because they're waiting until everything looks rosy, they're going to miss the rebound. So invest a little at a time every week, just as you would in your 401k. And that way you're going to buy low. The stock market always recovers. We were at new highs in February. We will be at new highs again in the future. Krista Huff, Chief Analyst, Cabot Undervalued Stocks Advisor. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it as always. Thank you. All right, check her out, habitwealth.com, and you can look for Cabot Undervalued Stocks Advisor. Just keep in mind, as we always say when we talk with stock gurus, talk to a financial advisor before you make any sorts of decisions. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will talk with Sidney Powell, co-author of the new book, Conviction Machine and Lawyer for Michael Flynn, who, of course, is a former national security advisor who found himself immersed in the Russiagate saga early on entered in a guilty plea, and then jumped away from the guilty plea eventually. So always fascinating to have these kinds of conversations. Looking forward to it. Keep it right here. You're watching Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, your host in partnership with The Washington Examiner. Crossroads, I'm Jimmy Sangenberger in partnership with the Washington Examiner, bringing you engaging, intelligent talk, Sang style, 
day in and day out. Thanks so much for joining us, being a part of the program. Pleasure and a privilege to be with you. As always, my thanks once again to Krista Huff, Chief Analyst at Cabot Undervalued Stocks Advisor, for offering up her thoughts on the stock market in, once again, the last segment. Gordon G. Chang, noted China critic, author of The Coming Collapse of China, will be joining us in the next segment here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Always appreciate Gordon's insights on what's happening, especially right now amidst coronavirus and China's role and all of that. But right now, I have a very interesting topic of conversation to discuss, which is the nature of the criminal justice system at the federal level. There's a new book out entitled Conviction Machines Standing Up to Federal Prosecutorial Abuse. Two co-authors for this, Sidney Powell and Harvey A. Silverglate, both writing the book Conviction Machine. Sidney Powell is a former federal prosecutor and co-author of the new book Conviction Machine, once again, um, the book that I have right here in front of me. She's represented individuals, corporations, and governments in federal appeals for more than 20 years. She's a highly sought speaker and frequent media guest who's appeared on major radio and television programs nationwide and has written extensively for some of our nation's leading publications regarding government and prosecutorial misconduct and previously authored License to Lie. Powell is a past president of the American Academy of Appellate Lawyers and the Bar Association of the Fifth Federal Circuit and a member of the American Law Institute. Based out of Dallas, she's also an attorney for Michael Flynn, which we will talk about as well in our conversation. Sidney Powell joins us now, again, author of the new book, Conviction Machine. Sidney, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let me ask you just a broad first question, and then we'll drill in on the book and some of the related topics. Why did you decide to write Conviction Machine? What is so important about it, and what is the book about at a top-line level? Well, Harvey wrote three felonies a day based on the premise that the average American commits three felonies going about their daily business because there are too many laws in the country that criminalize conduct no one would even know was criminal. And I wrote License to Lie, Exposing Corruption in the Department of Justice, and self-published it at about the same time. We didn't know each other at all, but we both found ourselves being asked, as we talked about those books, well, what can we do to change this? How do we fix it? So Harvey started writing Conviction Machine and had the thought to call me and ask me if I would help. I was, of course, honored and delighted that he would do that. He's an outstanding lawyer with just a stellar career. And so we put our heads together and, and drafted Conviction Machine to try to give anecdotal examples of things that have gone so wrong in our criminal justice system in real cases affecting real people and destroying lives unnecessarily, and then propose some solutions for the problems. And that we'll get to, too, is the solutions, because I always appreciate when you identify a crisis situation or a problem, something that needs to be remedied and actually propose alternatives for how to go about it. But in terms of this conviction machine, you chose that title. Why that title? And what is the nature of the problem when you look at underneath the hood and see how it's come about and what it means today for Americans? Well, it's multifaceted, of course, like most big problems are. First, there are too many criminal laws. We need a Walmart-sized rollback of our criminal laws, and it should be such that only Congress can make something a, cr a crime. 
right now agencies have made things criminal which shouldn't be allowed at all and congress can fix that easily by simply taking the power back to itself where it should only be in the first place then we have overzealous criminal prosecutors some are absolutely malevolent and seek to use the law as a weapon to achieve social and political objectives others are simply naively or or honestly overzealous in their uh, desire to do their jobs. They need supervision and they need to be removed from an, the protection of absolute immunity. As it is now, prosecutors cannot be sued for anything. They could deliberately make up a case against you, send you to prison, absolutely ruin your life, and do it knowingly and intentionally, and nothing can be done to them, nothing is done to them. It happens all the time. Just ask Michael Morton in Texas, who spent 25 years in state prison while the district attorney who hid the bloody bandana that had someone else's blood on it and evidence of his, from his son that exonerated him. And that guy was became a state court judge. Then when it was all uncovered 25 years later through DNA testing, uh, the judge got five days in the county jail for Michael Morton's 25 years in state prison. That's stunning. Sidney Powell, our guest, co-author of Conviction Machine. One thing I know, I worked as a, I'm not an attorney myself, but I was a legal assistant for a couple of years for an attorney, did a lot of family law, but also some criminal law. And I understand the importance of discovery, which is when documents are made available to uh, to someone who's been accused of a crime so that you can access and see what the evidence is. But you and your co-author identify in Conviction Machine one of the problems as being a hide-and-seek problem when it comes to discovery. Tell us more about that. Well, a criminal defendant is entitled to have the government provide to him any evidence they have that shows he might be innocent or that contradicts their witnesses or their theory of the case and anything that might mitigate the punishment against him. Prosecutors often, often don't do that at all. And they hide the evidence that shows people are innocent. That happened, and I talk about it at length in License to Lie, when four Merrill Lynch executives went to prison for a year on an indictment that criminalized innocent conduct, made it sound, made a regular business transaction sound like a horrific crime when there was nothing wrong with it and hid the evidence that showed the defendants were innocent. It took six years to find it. Meanwhile, they lost a year of their lives in prison when they never should have been there at all. The case should have been thrown out. Well, it never should have been brought, but it certainly should have been thrown out by the district judge on a motion to dismiss the indictment. So you have prosecutorial misconduct there. You have judges turning a blind eye to these things. They always want to believe the prosecutor. Nobody wants to reverse a criminal conviction. We've lost the presumption of innocence. The government convicts 98% of the cases it brings. As soon as jurors walk in a courtroom, their first thought is usually, well, I wonder what that guy sitting at that table did instead of uh, that man is presumed innocent and the government has to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The whole deck is stacked against a criminal defendant. And when the might and weight of the United States government is focused on crushing an individual, that's what usually happens. The prosecutors also have the ability to stack charges so they can, multiple statutes cover essentially the same conduct, but as long as there's one different element in each offense, and there usually is, they can add multiple charges for what amounts to the same conduct. 
For example, in the Enron litigation, the defendants had a 110 count indictment against them. Nobody can defend something like that. So one of the things we recommend is that there be some kind of limit on the number of charges in an indictment unless there are individual specific victims that, whose, whose rights need to be protected by each count of an indictment. You were a federal prosecutor for a while. Is this a new phenomenon or something that has been developing since even before you became a prosecutor? It was not the way it was when I was a prosecutor. I worked for nine different U.S. attorneys in three districts across the country under both political parties. And no U.S. attorney I worked for would have tolerated any of this for two seconds. So, I mean, we were told to do it right and uh, you know, not to stretch the law and to look out for judges who might be overzealous in terms of, of sending a defendant to prison or not following his rights. I mean, I've been known to stand in the courtroom and tell a judge they couldn't do something that was favorable to the government, but it was wrong for the defendant. And I don't see people doing that anymore. What changed? It's, How did this come it, about? In the last 20 years in particular, crossing both Democratic and Republican administrations, prosecutors have increasingly weaponized the law and sought to punch their own tickets to high dollar salaries in international law firms and higher positions in the Department of Justice by getting their names in the paper every day. And, and even, I think it was President Bush set up a white collar crime task force on top of the Enron task force, essentially untethered them from the Department of Justice. And Michael Chertoff and Bob Mueller and uh, Comey and people handpicked these prosecutors because they were terrorists of prosecutors. Well, a prosecutor's not supposed to be a terrorist. The job of a prosecutor is to seek justice, not convictions. These people have completely skewed the system and abused the dickens out of it. One of the cases that always comes to my mind when we're talking about federal prosecutorial abuse, Sidney Powell, again, co-author of the new book, Conviction Machine, is about one of your clients, Michael Flynn. I mean, this is a guy who entered into a plea bargain, guilty plea, and then rescinded that plea. But the circumstances that led him to actually plead guilty and then later to rescind are very interesting. I'd love for you to tell us what happened. That is the greatest atrocity and blight on the face of the Department of Justice I've ever seen, and it's still ongoing. We have moved to withdraw his guilty plea on multiple grounds, not the least of which is the government's breach of the plea agreement, their bad faith and retaliatory conduct against him for the last year because he refused to lie at their demand in the Eastern District of Virginia in a case against his former business partner. And the judge in that case wound up throwing the case out. And also, he, his lawyers that represented him before I came in the picture after his guilty plea had an egregious conflict of interest. They had done the Foreign Agent Registration Act filing that the Department of Justice Mueller squad put in their sights very early on and wound up essentially serving him up to the government. The whole thing is atrocious. The government made up the case from the beginning. We only learned this December in what evidence it should have been produced to us long ago that the FBI agent sent an agent in to what was supposed to have been a presidential daily briefing on August 17th, 2016, before the election 
to collect information on Flynn, to assess Flynn in case they needed to interview him later, i.e. if Donald Trump was elected president. The timeline is this, Strzok and Page text about the insurance policy on August 15. On August 16, they open the case against Flynn, and on August 17, they send this agent into the presidential daily briefing to spy on him and Trump and collect information. And then that same agent wound up interviewing him in the ambush interview at the White House on the 24th of January. On top of that, their notes don't match the 302 that they generated, their FBI report. The government says they don't have or can't find the original FBI interview report. They produced multiple drafts that show significant changes. Things were added into the report that they then alleged were false statements made by Flynn that aren't in their notes at all. General Flynn distinctly remembers telling them several things that do not wind up in the notes. And the whole case is made up. It exemplifies every single thing wrong with our judicial system, including the fact that Judge Sullivan, who is the hero of my book, License to Lie, because he ordered Brady material produced in the Ted Stevens case, just denied us every shred of Brady material, including the actual documents that even the government acknowledged contained exculpatory evidence. Uh, How does one get ensnared in a plea bargain, feeling like they have no way out, even if later on they might conclude, shoot, I shouldn't have done that. And I was sort of doing, as you say in the book, a dance with the devil. Well, it happens any number of ways. First, they crush you with threats of imprisonment for the rest of your life. They bleed you dry of legal fees to the point you have to sell your house and empty all your savings and start a public legal defense fund to try to defend yourself. Uh, Your lawyers don't tell you even all the evidence that the government has given them, the few meager disclosures that were made literally at the 11th hour after you'd already been coerced into pleading guilty. And they add on the threat of indicting your son who just had a four month old baby the very next day if you don't take the guilty plea right then. All the while they're hiding all the evidence that they have, that they know the charges were made up. They know the Farah statements weren't false. In fact, their own allegations of the Farah charges are what are the false statements. And that's, it just rolls over you, it crushes you. Sidney Powell, our guest, author of the new book, co-author of the new book, Conviction Machine, Standing Up to Federal Prosecutorial Abuse. Just a couple minutes left with you, and I'm curious, you, you mentioned one or two solutions before of what to do here. One of the items that you identify in Chapter 6 is an alternative to backroom deals that we see so often when these legal proceedings happen, particularly looking at immunity statutes. Uh, what do you mean by that, and are there other pertinent solutions that Uh, that Congress should be looking at, or at least the Justice Department, as far as improving upon the many fallacies we see right now in the system? Yes, uh, the government has the ability to give people immunity to compel their testimony, and that would be a far better use of, of power than compelling somebody to plead guilty to something they didn't do to save their lives and distort the whole system. And yes, Congress can do a lot. One of the things Congress needs to do right now is amend 18 United States Code Section 1001 to include a provision in the false statement provision that no false statement prosecution can be brought 
without a warned and fully recorded oral statement for it to be based on. This business of allowing FBI agents to take notes and write up a 302 and with and the defendant not even knowing he's being a sub he's a subject to the interview. In fact, they schemed and planned. A large group of FBI agents got together, including McCabe and the general counsel for the FBI, to plan how to interview Mike Flynn, keeping him off guard and without even knowing he was the subject of the interview, not to mention not warning him of any rights or that they were investigating him at all. Sidney Powell. You got to check out the book. Very interesting. Got it right here. Conviction Machine, Standing Up to Federal Prosecutorial Abuse. I really appreciate you taking the time. It is so many ways distressing, and hopefully members of Congress and also the Department of Justice will heed many of the warnings and solution ideas that you and your co-author Harvey Silvergate, Silverglate uh, have in the book. So I appreciate you taking the time and best of luck with Conviction Machine. Oh, thank you so much. And my website is sydneypowell.com so people can sign up for updates on the Flynn case and get more information about all of it and contribute to his defense fund. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time and your dedication to this issue, Sydney Powell. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Once again, the book is Conviction Machine Standing Up to Federal Prosecutorial Abuse. A very fascinating read and not too long of a read either. A lot of times you look at a book and you think, oh my goodness, this could be an exceptionally long read and I just don't have the time. Well, first of all, you probably have the time because a lot of us are spending a lot more time at home right now, but also it's not much more than 100 pages. Very interesting insights and observations to check out as well. Once again, Conviction Machine. Really, what has happened with Michael Flynn, the more I hear about it, the more stunned I am about how this whole process unfolded and everything related to Russiagate and so forth. It, it really is stunning. So here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, we love covering a range of different topics and issues. And when we return on the show, we will talk with Gordon Chang, of course, noted China critic, author of The Coming Collapse of China. And to set the stage before we go to a break here, I want to play this clip of cut three, just to put into your perspective what we're seeing about some of these shills for China when it comes to coronavirus. This is the exchange with a Hong Kong reporter and a senior WHO World Health Organization official that you just have to see it to believe it. Would the WHO consider Taiwan's membership? Hello? We, with the, with the I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah, let me, let, let me, let me repeat the question. No, so, that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. Right, because, because I'm, I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well, on Taiwan's case. We decided to give Dr. Alward another call to follow up. And I just want to see if you can comment a bit on how Taiwan has done so far in terms of containing the virus. Well, we've, we've already talked about China. And, um, you know, when you look across all the different areas of, uh, of China, they've actually all done quite a good job. So with that, I'd like to thank you very much for inviting us to participate. And, uh, and good luck as you go forward with the battle in Hong Kong. We've already talked about 
all of China. Not only does he hang up earlier on, but he has his little dodge, and part of the dodge is saying, we've talked about China already, and Taiwan's part of China. My goodness, what does Gordon Chang have to say about that? And then also some of the things that President Trump said yesterday in his press conference about China, some interesting things to discuss with the author of The Coming Collapse of China, Gordon Chang. When we come back here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, your host for the program in partnership with The Washington Examiner. Don't go anywhere. And now, the further future adventures of Starship Winkler. The captain finds himself up against a worthy adversary, a meteor maid. Oh, come on. I was only in there two parsecs. You can't double park here. You're in a twilight zone. I didn't see the signpost up ahead. Plus, your plates are expired. Hold on, hold on. I've got an idea. <clears throat> this is not the double parked starship you are looking for. This is not the... Oh, come on, really? You're going to try and pull mind tricks? What do I look like, a Gungan? Misa thought it would work. Here you go, Captain Schnook. Ah, Womp Rats. A summons? See you in court. You mean I got to come back all the way across the galaxy? Oh, look. This is right in the middle of Ponfar. And if I miss it, it's another seven years. Tough tribbles. Well, was the captain really parked in a twilight zone? Will there be a twist ending? Tune in next time when we hear... Look, maybe we can, you know, work something out. What do you have in mind? Uh, a couple passes to the Space of Palooza Festival. Free parking. <laughs> I will see you in court. You will pay in full. Sign here, please. You will see me in court. I will pay in full. I have signed here. Thank you. Have a nice day. What the... F How does she do that? On Starship, Starship Winkler. America's politics are crazy. The culture is in flux. That's why we work hard to help you keep up. More politics, more culture, and more access. We focus on the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest names in politics and punditry. Go to our website, WashingtonExaminer.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. To Obamacare. Pardon me. Oh, hey, uh, you must be Freddie May. Uh, Frederick, please. Yeah, whatever. Hey, listen, I'm uh, I'm Bill O'Goods with OSLAP. That's Obama's Student Loan Acceleration Program. And uh, we're, we just passed Obamacare, right? We're about to pass another bill to nationalize student loans. It's going to be a whole federal takeover. Excuse me, sir. Can I get you a drink? Uh, yes. Do you have a Lady Gaga? Of course. One moment. Please. How does this benefit scalp the Society of College Academics for Loan Proliferation? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, more loans equals more money. That's more money for everybody. You could raise uh, your tuition excrementally in perpetuity forever, and there's nothing they can do about it. You still got to go to school, right? You still got to get a loan. You ain't got no money. <laughs> it's a win-win. Oh, and here's another thing. You can't discharge student debt by bankruptcy. You could have three student loans, you could go bank, you can't declare bankruptcy on any of them. I don't care how much money you don't got. But what about the students? The who? This. <laughs> Remember, my friend, here at Old Slap, we make money the old fashioned way. 
We steal it from the students. <laughs> this is for you. So what you're saying is, this is a gold mine. Indeed it is. A gold mine. A gold mine. Stop! Let me tell you what's really going on with student loan debt today. You see, in 2010, President Barack Obama nationalized the student loan system, tying it to Obamacare. At that point in time, student loan debt across the country totaled $800 billion. Now, about a decade later, that number has doubled to $1.6 trillion. This is particularly because the federal government keeps giving out the loans, which has allowed colleges and universities to blithely increase their tuition without any concern. And the federal government just keeps giving out the loans because guess what? If you're a borrower who's deeply indebted with student loan debt, you cannot discharge that debt in bankruptcy. You're stuck with it for life. That needs to change, particularly because there's no risk to the lender. That means the federal government can keep giving out loans, and also there's no risk to the colleges and universities. So they'll just keep raising tuition regardless. There really does need to be a congressional action done to address this student loan crisis in America. And at the Millennial Policy Center, we have some great extensive research on how to do this, including some bills working their way through Congress. So log on to MillennialPolicyCenter.org today to learn more. <laughs> right on. <laughs> well, it's going to be a pretty good decade. <laughs> Freddie, let's have another. Oh, let me just. Style have another vintage moment in them. Find out next, it's the final segment. Jimmy at the Crossroads, episode 15. The Crossroads, as the man said, continuing. So great to be with you. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. Thanks again to Sidney Powell, author of the fascinating new book, Conviction Machine in the last segment. And as we continue on this show, you know, just before we went to a break, just before we went to the break, we played a clip that was stunning of Dr. Allward, a Canadian with the World Health Organization, I would say shilling for China. We are seeing more and more evidence of the fact that a lot of people, especially at the WHO, but in other parts of the world, have been trying to advance the Chinese propaganda about how they've handled coronavirus, where it started, so on and so forth. And this actually is, and we've talked about this several times on this program already, but this actually is a very important point to keep in mind. Trump administration yesterday talked a little bit about China and coronavirus. We've got some video we will play and some Points of conversation to have with our last but not least guest today here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, Gordon G. Chang, 
already a good friend of the show. He's the author, most recently, of Losing South Korea, and earlier in this century, he wrote the book The Coming Collapse of China. You see him a lot on Fox News and other outlets. He's written for numerous publications. Noted China critic Gordon Cheng joins us once again here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Gordon, my friend, welcome back. It's good to talk with you. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Appreciate you joining us, as always. So, First, since I teed it up with the WHO video, you've seen it. I know you've been talking about it. Tell us what you're noticing from the World Health Organization vis-a-vis -vis China right now. What did you make of that exchange? Especially when he says at the end of the clip, China, all of China, and ignores Taiwan, doesn't even want to answer the question from the Hong Kong reporter. Yeah. The World Health Organization seems to be bought by China, and it's acting like an arm of the Communist Party. Um, and clearly with regard to Taiwan, um, Dr. Allward, uh, that, that Saturday interview with RTHK in Hong Kong really just showed you that they're much more interested in promoting China's territorial aggression than they are in promoting world health. Because Taiwan, out of all the countries in the world, Jimmy, Taiwan has had the best response to the coronavirus epidemic, even though it just sits on China's doorstep. But even more important, um, WHO has done some things which have actually spread this around the world. So, for instance, on January 14th, there was that infamous tweet from the WHO saying that they, they didn't see any evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. They were talking about China. Um, yeah, Chinese tweet, doctors actually. from about the second week of December knew that there was human-to-human -human transmission. Beijing didn't fully didn't admit it until uh, January 20 when they had a virologist on state TV and the first official acknowledgement was on the following day on the 21st. Jimmy, that lulled a lot of governments into not taking the precautions that they needed. Um, so WHO has a lot of uh, responsibility on its hands. Let's pull up that tweet. In fact, Ari Fleischer, the former press secretary to President George W. Bush yesterday, put out this tweet saying, Dear WHO, do you plan to delete this tweet signed everyone in the world outside of China? And that is the now infamous January 14th tweet where WHO specifically said, quote, preliminary investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission of the novel coronavirus identified in Wuhan, China. This is the World Health Organization. Gordon Chang, what credibility do they have at this point as a world health organization if they're not warning the world in any way, shape, or form? Um, I think they have no credibility. And it's not just that tweet. It's, for instance, um, Dr. Tedros, the director general of WHO, in January um, said uh, to Chinese state media that China's response to the coronavirus epidemic um, showed the superiority of China's socialist system. So this was an endorsement of totalitarianism and an attack on democracy. Um, so um, I don't know what that has to do with world health, um, though it has a lot to do with uh, despotism. Uh, also, um, the WHO delayed the declaration of a public emergency of international concern that occurred in January, and they delayed the declaration of a pandemic in last month. So um, they have actually inhibited the world's response to this. And what we see right now, which is a pandemic, which is uh, 
um, all of these uh, hundreds of thousands of infections and we're going to on, on tens of thousands of deaths, that is, I think, directly traceable to China and the WHO. Why? Why do you think the World Health Organization is literally shilling for China in this way and concealing information from the rest of the world that would have been life-saving? Not could have been, would have been. That's a great question, and I don't have an answer for you. Um, Tedros is known um, to have been very much in the socialist mode. Um, but, you know, China doesn't actually contribute that much from a financial point of view to the WHO. We contribute a lot more. Um, but China has, um, over a course of decades, tried to penetrate multilateral institutions. And it's been the most successful at the WHO. So um, that, I, I suppose, who knows what uh, China has on the senior leadership. But we need to clear out all of the senior leadership or we need to defund the WHO because this is not a health organization right now. This is a promote socialism, promote disease organization. Gordon Chang, our guest, author of The Coming Collapse of China. Let's play cut one here. This is yesterday at the press briefing for the administration. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien asked about China's numbers and the accuracy of those numbers as far as what they're presenting to the world is in uh, infection rates. Ambassador O'Brien, did uh, China underreport uh, both the number of cases and the death toll from the coronavirus? And if that's the case, Mr. President, what does that mean for our relationship with China and your relationship with President Xi? Well, number one, I think the President has a great relationship with President Xi, and we'd like to have a great relationship with China. Uh, unfortunately, we're just not in a position to confirm any of the numbers that are coming out of China. There's no way to confirm any of those numbers. There's lots of public reporting on whether the numbers are are, are too low. Uh, you've got access to those reports that are coming out of Chinese social media and uh, and some of the few reporters that are left in China, we just have no way to confirm any of those numbers. Thank you. We really don't know. How do we know whether they underreported or reported however they report? But uh, we had a great call the other night. We're working together on a lot of different things, including trade. They're buying a lot. They're spending a lot of money. They're giving it to our farmers. They're paying our farmers for the product. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to continue that along, John. Yeah. So both of them say there's no way to confirm those numbers one way or the other, Gordon Chang, but also President Trump gets up there and, and is touting some of the trade exchanges, particularly with farmers, as a, I think an extension of his phase one trade deal with China. What did you make of that? Because clearly there, there wasn't an attitude really of condemnation like we have heard from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, for example, or the vice president who was standing there. Well, President Trump is just trying, I think, to get through a very difficult period. And so I can sort of understand that. Um, I, I would have been um, much tougher, more realistic about China, um, because China maliciously spread this disease, um, as we've just talked about. And we're not going to be able to solve this or other problems as long as uh, the Communist Party rules. So um, we've got, as Americans, I think that we have to understand that we have a common enemy. China, China is attacking our society across the board, and we got to deter China. And it's not just what we've been talking about. We have seen over the last three, four weeks a pickup in tempo of the People's Liberation Army activities and provocations around Taiwan and the southern islands of Japan. 
So we've got to be concerned that Beijing has got something awful in store for us. So um, we have just got to be vigilant on all fronts. Well, we're also seeing Gordon Chang, and this story caught my attention. It was what precipitated my invitation for you to come back here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. We're also noticing that China is providing a lot of aid to a variety of different countries around the globe, Italy among others. Does that concern you at all, especially in light of the fact that they concealed the information from the public, aided and embedded by the WHO, for example, about what the coronavirus would actually do and how it was a concern and it had had human-to-human transmission and so forth? Are you concerned about this? Is there any way that the United States should respond to it? I mean, there are people around the globe, Italy especially is one hot-button place, that really need this kind of aid. Yeah, I mean, China says that it's donating aid to countries like Italy, but it's really actually selling this stuff. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm deeply concerned about China's propaganda initiatives because they they've said very clearly what they're trying to do. They think that the United States is not a good steward of the international system. They believe that they should rule. Um, they've engaged in uh, disinformation campaigns, which are inflammatory and dangerous. So um, there's nothing here to like, and there's a lot to be concerned about that China might actually be effective. Because there are large parts of the world that are anti-American, uh, even in the best of times, and also um, because China does is willing to spend a lot of money on some countries, um, corrupt its leaders, do all sorts of things. We've got a concern that uh, leaderships in some of these countries are going to actually respond positively to China's propaganda. You know, we just got to understand our society is under attack, Jimmy. And as much as we don't want to do that, um, to understand that, China's not leaving us any choice. Oh, it's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, it was two Thursdays ago, we first had you here on this program, Gordon Chang. And I was struck afterwards. I titled the video, China's Coronavirus Culpability. And of course, you were in there. And within moments after that video live stream went off the air after we finished up our Facebook Live, it was blocked by a Chi an apparent Chinese proxy, which happened two subsequent times. It's discontinued now, and they've accepted my disputes. But I don't think that was a coincidence. And what I've noticed here is that the Chinese are doing a couple of things. One, in their own country and around the globe, Iran was a proxy a couple weeks ago doing exactly this. They are trying to spread this disinformation that the United States was the incubator of this virus, created it, introduced patient zero through the U.S. Army into Wuhan, China, where really this whole thing began. And at the same time, they're also, it seems, trying to suppress those voices that are highlighting in the United States and other countries in the West what China has been up to in regards to coronavirus and the facts of that matter. What do you make of this disinformation campaign and why it is important to call out China? Well, it's important to call out China for a lot of reasons, but the one which I think is core is that China's leaders are justifying in their own mind retaliation against the United States. And they're, and they're sort of preparing the Chinese people for that because in that March 12th tweet from Zhao Lijian, a foreign ministry spokesman, this was actually official. Um, they, he intimated germ warfare. Um, so uh, he didn't say it, but uh, that was the suggestion that I got when I read it. So we've got to be concerned that what China is going to do. Um, we Americans are often taken by surprise from our adversaries. We don't recognize the maliciousness and 
of their campaigns against us. We don't pay attention to what they're saying. And that we do that for, we ignore that for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that we live in a legitimate political system. So we don't believe that propaganda is important. Um, but in insecure systems like China's, um, propaganda is absolutely vital. So we don't understand that when China declares us to be its enemy, which it did last May, that that has consequences and that they are going to fundamentally attack our society. We're just oblivious. And we know what happens when we remain oblivious. China in this last uh, few months with the coronavirus has taken steps that its leaders knew or should have known would lead to the spread of this disease to the United States and other places, which means that those 5,000 or so Americans who have died, they were killed. They were killed by China. I know that's tough. I know it sounds harsh. But when you look at the actions of Xi Jinping, um, they were more than just reckless. They were malicious to a degree where you have to come to the conclusion that they wanted those Americans dead. Gordon Chang, before we let you go, just a couple minutes left with you. I want to ask you about North Korea. We haven't seen much news out of North Korea in a while, at least not making notable headlines and what have you. The last time I saw something was in the last week or so when President Trump offered aid to North Korea, which they didn't seem to take him up on dealing with coronavirus. But you wrote... Uh, a couple of books that relate to the North Korean crisis. I mentioned losing South Korea, but also nuclear showdown, North Korea takes on the world. Where do you see the North Korea policy right now of the United States? Have we seen improvements on the part of the Trump administration in dealing with that country so far, uh, particularly since the original uh, summit, uh, the first time that they met just a couple of years ago? Yeah, North Korea is completely on the back burner right now. Uh, you can imagine that because we've got an emergency. Our economy's at a standstill. Our society's at a standstill. We're, you know, we're challenged by China across the board. So North Korea right now is, is just not, um, you know, it's just not on anyone's radar scope. Um, you know, and North Korea right now is hobbled itself. Although it does not admit that it's had any coronavirus cases, there are indications that the disease has ravaged North Korea, um, as has ravaged South Korea and has ravaged China, um, its two most important land neighbors. Um, so we're, we're seeing, you know, a North Korea that's probably not in a mood to threaten us in any material way. Um, you know, our readiness in South Korea is declining because of coronavirus, but I think that that's also true of North Korea's readiness as well. So right now, it is just something that we're not... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a threat. Sure. Very interesting. Gordon Chang. Check out his books, The Coming Collapse of China, Losing South Korea, and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Always great to check in with you, my friend. Thanks so much for taking the time today to join us and Jimmy at the Crossroads. Thank you so much, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. Great to have you here. We appreciate it as well. Once again, Gordon G. Chang joining us on an action-packed edition of the program. That is it for us today, but never fear. We will be back tomorrow with more engaging, intelligent talk, sang style, here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Such a pleasure and a privilege to be with you. Michael Barone should be joining us from the Washington Examiner. We'll also be joined by Richard Lorick, who is with the Foundation for Economic Education, a very interesting new report they've just come out with in the last couple of months on millennials and reaching younger people. That should be fascinating. And who knows what else we will have in store on Jimmy at the Crossroads in partnership with 
the great Washington Examiner. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. Stay safe, stay sound, stay healthy. And as always, may God bless America. Tune in tomorrow. Don't miss a beat.